A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Hey there, sacred text team. Hello, Harry Potter and the sacred text team. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. Do Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tekile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, an Owl Post edition. To wit, to woo. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by the amazing author and journalist Lauren Sandler, who has spent the last 20 years writing about issues around inequality and has written a book that completely changed my life called One and Only. And I thought that she was done changing my life. But then a couple of months ago, her incredible, incredible book, This Is All I Got, A New Mother's Search for Home came out and has cracked me open and changed me. And I'm so excited, Lauren, to have you here today. So Lauren, I was wondering if you could tell everybody, we do 30 second recaps and I won't put a timer on, but I was wondering if you could sort of do <laughs> your elevator pitch of this amazing book. This is all I got. Well, it's a book that I wrote to read like a novel, but every word of it is true. So it is the true story of a really extraordinary young woman I met when she was 22 and pregnant and living in a shelter in Brooklyn. The book begins with her going into labor in the shelter, and it follows her through her first year of motherhood as she is attempting to secure housing and stability, as she's trying to stay in school. She's a criminal justice student. And as she's, you know, just trying to be a woman with agency um, and extraordinary responsibility and no margin of error trying to survive in a system that seems hell-bent against her doing so. And part of why I was so interested in telling her story in particular is, you know, she's got a lawyer's mind and, you know, just a brilliant handle on this labyrinth of a social service system. And I really thought when I met her, that if she couldn't make this work, then no one could. And I wanted to find out if she could. Yeah, I mean, it was just fortuitous timing because I read your book right as we were starting book seven of Harry Potter. And I was really thinking about how we were going to reckon with Ron and the fact that he leaves in the middle of this battle in these books. And in reading your book and the psychological impacts that being housing insecure can have on someone, it suddenly occurred to me that these three kids out on a mission mm. are housing insecure. It's interesting thinking about it in terms of book seven, because one of the things that the kids really contend with is boredom and frustration within that boredom and isolation within that boredom and also feeling like 
everything in the world is organized against them. And that experience is really similar to what I witnessed and in strangely uncanny ways that, you know, it doesn't matter how driven they are. It doesn't matter how smart they are. It doesn't matter how equipped they are to succeed in a just world, but in a world that is this unjust and specifically this unjust in a way that really seems to have it out for them in particular, what it means to have to you know, hide yourself away in the only place that feels safe and that feels stable, but without all of the structures that one might need or one might expect to survive, right? I mean, they don't have their parental support or the institution of Hogwarts or other friends around them, the guidance of their teachers. It's just them and they lose it. This is what happens to your psyche when you don't know that you're going to be okay and you feel alone in that and it feels like there's nothing in the world that can help you. Like it makes you fall apart. And, you know, I was thinking about, for example, curfew at the shelter where you just have to be alone in a room with your baby after nine o'clock at night and the things that can happen in your head in that situation. Or you're stuck together with other people in the shelter and they may be people who you feel great affection for and really relate to. But what it means to be in that pressure cooker together when there's nothing supporting you, I think that it really hits something about this experience. And I think that that is hard hard and scary for teenage kids. But honestly, you know, Camilla's 22 and I meet her. She's not that much older and she has already been living this life for years. She's someone who was put into foster care when she was a teenager and her foster care was so unworkable for her that she found a room to rent on the Lower East Side on her own dime, working in a supermarket so that she would have less of a commute to her high school in Manhattan, from which she graduated early and then got herself off to college. I mean, she's one of these kids, but this is what it means to be one of these kids in America, If especially you're born poor and especially if you're born poor and within a family of immigrants or within a family of people with darker skin. She's Dominican-American, and that is not an identity group that we tend to support any more than those kids are supported by the ministry. I mean, I, I love the metaphor of a bureaucracy that is not set up to support you. The negligence of that plus racism is basically the same as having Voldemort have a death wish on you. That is the experience of millions of Americans, right? That possibly an invitation that you are offering us is that a way in to understand people who are homeless or who live on the margins for any number of reasons, that it can feel as though you are a target and that no matter what you do, you're not going to be able to find your way out. And that the resources are sort of like Dumbledore's clues, like they're there, but they're really hard to follow. And like they don't necessarily help you get the horcruxes, right? That's such a great analogy about how totally obtuse and mysterious and impossible to acquire these resources can be. I will say one thing about Camilla, who the book is about, is she has this extraordinary type of magical thinking that she is capable of. She almost sees herself, I believe, as the heroine in a narrative where by sheer force of mind and sheer ingenuity, it seems as though she can will great things for herself. So there is something about her that almost feels out of the world of fantasy. Unfortunately, though, she doesn't live in the world of fantasy. It isn't a novel. We don't get to write what ending we want for her. And so the reality of that life is is a, a dire one. Lauren, one of the things that you have to navigate in the book is both a storyteller, but also someone who's in direct relationship with Camilla. So often when we think about inequality, I know I was raised with the sense of like, oh, it's just about having people have more help. It doesn't have to involve me. And I'm becoming more and more suspicious of that because I think if there's going to be equality, I may have to either risk more or not have something so that someone else can have that, which they are entitled to. So I'm really interested in like 
how, how were you personally pulled into Camilla's story? But also when we think about housing insecurity and homelessness generally, like what is asked of us who are housing secure? That's really interesting because now I'm thinking about everything you're asking me through this book. <laughs> My brain's sort of firing in, in surprising ways. You know, when Harry realizes that he is a Horcrux himself, what is he willing to sacrifice for the better mm-hmm. of others? What of his own power? What of his own life? And that, that I think is such an extraordinary moment that almost the whole series leads to. And we are never asked to sacrifice our own lives for the good of others unless we are, you know, in a really dire context or in the military. In terms of civilian life, it's such a rare thing that we ever have to think about. So we're clearly not talking on that level, but we do have to think about if we want things to be different, what we get to give up of our own. And that can be as simple as, you know, are we willing to be taxed more? So there are different social services systems. Or, you know, are we willing to rethink the way our society is policed, for example? You know, I, mm-hmm. my book was reported in a city that pays $6 billion for a police force and has a totally, totally dysfunctional housing and social services system, which has been radically underfunded for years. And my book is very much the experience of life in that underfunded system and how dysfunctional and soul crushing it is. So what are we as citizens willing to give up in terms of our own paychecks, if we're lucky enough to have them, or in terms of our own free time to organize, to make radical change in a way that everyone in our society can be valued in a way that, you know, human rights includes housing, human rights includes education and includes health. And are we willing to give up some of the security that comes along with policing people of color and people in poverty in a radically different way than white privileged people are policed? You know, do we want to keep paying for that and not to help other people? So I think that those those are really big questions. In terms of what we as individuals can do, this is something that I've thought a lot about because here I am in this situation with Camilla, watching her get evicted from her homeless shelter, listening to my own daughter say, how are we not inviting her to come live in our house? But I, as a journalist, needed to see what was going to happen. And I, as someone who, you know, is paid as a journalist, was not in a situation to change her housing situation in any permanent way. I mean, this is part of the issue here is it isn't a situation that individuals can change unless those individuals have the last name Zuckerberg or Bezos or Gates, in which case they can change it in a heartbeat, right? So it's been pretty accepted for quite a few years now that it would take $20 billion to end homelessness in America, which sounds like a lot of money until you think about Jeff Bezos having $110 billion at his disposal. So subtract 20 and he's got $90 billion at his disposal. It's not like he would feel it for a second. There, There's easily 20 people in this country who could say, you know what, just take one of my billions. Let's end this. But that doesn't happen. And the reason that they have all of these billions are because we have permitted policy to just make our inequality this massive, massive, ever gaping chasm in America. And so I think it's really tricky. I think that what we can do as individuals who are not billionaires are really advocate loudly and with energy and with votes and with phone calls, you name it, for radical change in our housing policy, just so that our policy looks like pretty much everywhere else in the developed world. And I think that we can also put a lot of pressure on our richest Americans who could just snap their fingers and fix this but they don't. Mm. Mm. So Lauren, how do we feel about Ron abandoning Harry and Hermione? I feel like I've been really hard on Ron for the last several years. We've been mostly reading these books through the lens of the Me Too movement, right? Which is a movement that I have felt very moved by and very inspired by. And I just, over this last reading of the books, have seen Ron as more and more problematic and more and more the embodiment of white privilege of being multi-generational wizard born. His dad works in the ministry, but he sees himself as poor and in many ways is lower middle class. But is, you know, like 
rapey and gross in a lot of ways. And I, in book seven, though, have seen him change, right, in a lot of ways. He's at least trying to change. And then there is this big moment where he abandons Harry and Hermione. And part of the reason he abandons them is that he has somewhere to go. And Hermione and Harry Mm. don't. Hermione's parents are in Australia. She could walk off but has nowhere to go. And Harry would be unsafe anywhere else. And I'm just wondering if you can help me because I actually think that Ron deserves a tremendous amount of empathy. And so I'm hoping that you can help me build my case. I think that to make the choice to live in incredible risk and discomfort when you don't have to is a really hard choice to make. And I think that he does that for quite a long time. And then he breaks because it's really hard. I think that there is no one who would ever choose to be homeless. There is no one who would ever choose to be at the brutal end of, of state bureaucracy. But I think there's another aspect to it, too, which is Harry doesn't have a family. And Harry has made Ron and Hermione his family. And there's something really beautiful about this period of time when they're all together as this little family unit. And it's really the first time he's ever had anything like that. And to have Ron just walk, I think, feels like a different element of Camilla's story to me, which is she is someone who has been abandoned by her parents. She is someone who was put into foster care because neither of her parents were willing to raise her anymore. You know, Camilla's father is always sort of a dream for her to reconnect with, and she's constantly searching for his attention, but he's driving around Queens in his Porsche and asking her to give back the $100 that he lent her when she was in a shelter. And so I feel in Camilla's experience, in my experience of Camilla, and in my experience almost unwittingly becoming Camilla's family through the process of this book, how much it means to not have family walk away from you when you've never had family that you can rely on, even if that's chosen family and not blood family, maybe especially if it's chosen family and not blood family. You know, I spent all this time with her and then I said, okay, I got to go right now. And when I did that, she felt it as the biggest betrayal Because like Harry, she has massive abandonment issues. And like Harry, that is an incredible trigger for her. That is a trigger for so many people who live in poverty. You know, the majority of people who live in poverty, the majority of people who are homeless are people in single mother families. The story of abandonment is the story of poverty in America. And so I understand why Ron doesn't stick it out. I understand that he's pushed as far as he can go, but I also feel such grief and betrayal about his decision to walk because he can. And I think that it does really raise this thorny question of how much are those of us who can choose what we give up expected to choose. And I think that we need to push ourselves to give up more, but it's also important in certain ways to be kind to ourselves and to be able to appreciate the things that we have and learn how to share them. I mean, that's a wonderful thing about the Weasley family is they take Harry in and they make him their own, not as a charity case, but because they love him. You know, I I still am texting with Camilla every day, even though that she doesn't live near me anymore. Not because I'm reporting on her, not because this is something that I need to do as a citizen, but because I, I love her and I never want her to feel abandoned by me again. And so I just think that that there are hard things for us to balance in a society of such unequal privilege. And we need to we need to do a better job. One of the things I can imagine, Lauren, you know, for listeners listening to this is like, why aren't we hearing from Camilla, (laughs) right? Why, Why are we hearing from you, Lauren? And that feels awful saying that out loud, because on the one hand, I wouldn't have heard Camilla's story were it not for you. But like, how do you make sense of your own privilege within 
sharing this story more widely and, and your whole body of work, which is always helping us focus our attention on the things that it's so easy for privileged people like me to turn away from. I'm so grateful that you asked that. Um, yeah, this is a question that has kept me up through this entire process. On the one hand, I became a journalist for this reason. I have the incredible privilege of working in a field which is a non-lucrative internship heavy kind of field. But even within that, so many journalists don't write these kind of stories. So like... This is true. I mean, it is felt that there is not much of a market for said stories. And that is a deeply troubling thing. But that's also changed a lot. So in 1992, when I moved to New York, there were 20,000 people who were sleeping in New York City shelters. And it was considered to be a national crisis. There was an average of one to two stories about homelessness in the New York Times every single day. When I started reporting my book in 2015, there were over three times that number in New York City shelters and wow. about 15,000 more outside of shelters. And we very rarely talked about homelessness anymore. And so I think that it is really a topic that people have felt doesn't grab readers' interests, which is something that we can talk about. But beyond that, you know, there is then an added question, which has really raised itself quite loudly and necessarily in recent times about who gets to tell a story like this, who gets to tell mm -hmm. a story of poverty if you are raised in privilege, who gets to tell a story of color if you're white. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is an understandably really complicated question. There were plenty of people who asked me, why are you not just helping Camilla tell her own story? And I will say at the time she didn't want to. And at the time she really wanted me to tell it for her and to tell mm -hmm. my own interpretation mm -hmm. of it. So, you know. That said, there was another woman at the shelter who did think that she wanted to tell her own story. And I was very, very involved in that process until she let it go. So mm. I think that when people want to have their own voice be the voice, it's essential that we work to support and amplify those voices. I also mm. think that it is essential that those of us who feel called to tell these stories of inequality in the world, that we do so, but we do it mindful of our own privilege and our own difference at all times. So in the right. book, I write a lot about what it meant to be sort of traversing these two maps of New York, what it meant to leave the shelter and pick up wine to go to a dinner party or what it meant to come home from the welfare office and write a check for my daughter's music lessons. And especially what it meant through this process to be writing a book proposal and have my agent send it out and to know that I would be paid for the work I was doing. I believe I should be paid for the work that I was doing. But there was still a question there. So I think that I think that there are ways to do it ethically and mindfully. And I really hope that I did that. Mm. Well, I just want to say to our listeners that one of the tragedies of the coronavirus is that this book, which should have landed like an earthquake in our lives, it did not hit our newspapers and our consciousness and our social media feeds in the way that it should have which is one of the reasons why I know you feel this way too, that I feel so strongly about talking about homelessness is because it is one of these persistent problems that doesn't make it to the front page because it's not news, it's the status quo. And so I just want to tell all of our listeners that it's our responsibility to change that and to make sure that this is front page in our hearts because homelessness exacerbates the coronavirus and it unequally impacts black people and people of color in general and all of the issues we care about in defunding the police and investing in social services. All of that is in your book. This is all I got. So I just want to actually do a direct call to all of our listeners. It is a moral responsibility to read this book and go <laughs> order it from your library or on your Kindle or buy it. But like, you absolutely have to read this book and tell everybody you know about it because you will then be able to say that you know Camilla and you will be able to be an advocate for all of these things that we care about so much out in the world better because you've read this book. 
Thank you so much for being on the show, Lauren. We really appreciate you, not just for this conversation, but I know that this is just one piece in a decades-long commitment to telling stories that we need to hear. And so, again, everyone, check out the book, This Is All I've Got by Lauren Sandler. We're so grateful. Thank Thank you, Lauren. Thank you so much. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. we now get to listen to some voicemails from our amazing listeners and our first voicemail is from jessica hi casper vanessa and ariana this is jessica from arlington virginia i was at your live show um, in dc in november and i have been binging to catch up ever since so i just finished the episodes on anxiety and friendship um, from season six. And it was like you were talking right to me. I I just had to call in and share a story with you. So a few years ago, I went through a friend divorce and this breakup was exacerbated by and caused by my anxiety. Um, I was experiencing debilitating anxiety. I couldn't drive. I couldn't get through a work day without going into the bathroom to cry. And I, was in the process letting down my friend, which only made the anxiety worse. Um, In turn, this friend completely invalidated my anxiety and she couldn't see that I wasn't there for her, not because I didn't want to be, but because I physically couldn't be. Um, I went on medication and have been doing really well since. Um, In fact, I recently had to increase my medication, which at the moment, in the moment felt like a failure, but I realize with everything going on in the world, I need to be there for my friends and my family. And I need to do the things that are right for my body, even though it might feel like a step back for a moment. So I just wanted to offer a blessing to anyone who feels like they can't be there for the people that they love, who feel let down by the people that they love. There's always a story behind what's going on and you're not alone and you're going to be okay. So thank you so much for this podcast. Um, It is the bright spot in an otherwise terrible, terrible world right now. Thank you so much and keep up the good work. Bye. 
Jessica, I guess I just want to say I'm with you. And I'm so sorry that this is the reality of being human. You know, I have depression and anxiety and social anxiety. And and this is a cycle that I know that I engage in with my friends. I get depressed. And so I don't reach out or don't respond. And then I get anxious about the fact that I haven't responded, which sends me into a further depression and sense of self-loathing. So this is a pattern I know well. And I I just think it's not a pattern unique to people with depression and anxiety. I know when my mom found out that my dad had a brain tumor, I was seven and my brothers were nine and three. And the way that she decided to cope with having a dying husband who did not die, thank God, and three little kids was by completely shutting herself off and only focusing on the four of us and deciding to put blinders on. And it's been you know, over 30 years since that happened. And a lot of her friendships did survive. And some of the friendships did not survive. But I guess the message I would want you to take is that you're not alone in this experience. This is part of being human and it sucks. And there are going to be people who get it. And there are going to be people who are sad and need you at the same time that you are sad and need them. And therefore it just won't work out. And none of it is anybody's fault. And I just want to repeat what you say, right? Which is, you know, you offer this beautiful gift to everybody that they're not alone and you're not alone, right? This is this is something that we all know a version of. Mm. I'm just really glad you're doing much better, Jessica. Our next voicemail is from Laura. Hey there, Sacred Text team. My name is Laura, coming at you from Missouri. I just wanted to talk to you all about a moment from Book 7, Chapter 7, The Will of Albus Dumbledore, which we read through the theme of identity. I wanted to talk about something that wasn't discussed in the show, which is a moment where Harry places identity on Ginny. He says that was one of the best things about Ginny. She was very rarely weepy. And this is such an anti-feminist statement. And I realized that this episode was recorded before uh, J.K. Rowling came out with uh, all her hate speech. But for somebody who very loudly pronounces their feminism and wants to stoutly defend feminism in safe female spaces, she is falling into the male narrative that expects women to be somehow masculinized in order to be worthy. We tend to diminish women for their emotions, calling them hysterical, as if men don't have hormones or emotions of their own. We like to play this narrative of not like other girls, which is such a damaging concept. Uh, It gives this idea that girls, generally speaking, are less than, and you should strive to be better than that. You should unfeminize yourself in some way so that you are wholly unique and not, to put it colloquially, basic. And again, this is in the same chapter where later, towards the end of the chapter, we see Hermione covering a sob. So I'm curious if Harry thinks that Hermione is somehow less than for being traditionally feminine in being weepy. And why did she feel the need to cover that sob? Is it because somehow she knows that in this boys club where she is the only girl, she has to try to diminish that somehow? Um, I think it's more likely that this is just J.K. Rowling's writing and a perspective of her own that maintains that girls have to hide their emotions and their softness in order to be successful in a man's world. So I'd like to say a blessing for all the basic girls, for every girl who loves an iced latte, a fluffy sweater, and who cries at rom-coms. This blessing is for you. You are not like other girls. You're not like anyone because you're uniquely yourself, and it is okay to enjoy things that are traditionally feminine. Thanks so much for your podcast. I always enjoy listening and I cannot wait for the next episode. Take care. Laura, this is such an interesting question. I'm really grateful that you raised this and and point us to that moment because part of me wonders, of of course, the author is writing the book, but I wonder if this line where we hear the commentary on Ginny, you know, being really cool for not crying is actually coming from Harry's perspective, like Harry's voice within the story, which feels very true for like a teenage boy's perspective, you know, in this kind of historical moment where everything is so gendered and this sense of of strength and masculinity are equated in a way that's so completely false. Because it feels, 
I don't know, having been a boy, teenage boy in a boarding school, it feels very real in terms of how I could imagine people talking. And it masks, I think, in some way, perhaps Harry's own deep insecurities around emotions and the fact that perhaps he wouldn't like anything more than just to like cry in someone's arms and doesn't feel like he he can do that. And first of all, Laura, I accept your blessing as someone who loves like a nice latte and is a basic person. Thank you. I felt very seen and I feel <laughs> blessed. But there are some nuances I, I want to add. And I'm going to steal this language from Lauren Sandler, who we talked to earlier in this episode, which is to your point, Laura, I don't think the goal is to stop Hermione from crying, but it is to allow Harry to cry. And maybe Ginny is not a crier because of this attempt to be a cool girl and because of the patriarchy imposing itself on her by having all of these brothers and any number of other things. Or you can't simultaneously be a great Quidditch player and a crier. And so she let one of those things slip away. But I also want to invite the possibility that Ginny is just not a natural weeper and that we should detach those things from gender norms and we should detach those things from coolness and that, right? I mean, what we're all trying to do is live as authentically as possible. Yeah, Vanessa, exactly. Like not only do we need to, you know, stop making like, oh, crying is feminine, but like just the, the entire <laughs> the entire association of gender with specific behaviors is in itself deeply unhelpful for people to live lives of flourishing and freedom. And so, yeah, let's read the text, but with that, commentary knowing that it doesn't help Ginny, it doesn't help Harry, it doesn't help anyone to see the world in that kind of simplistic duality. The other question that I think you're grappling with beautifully in your voicemail is how can you represent toxic masculinity and the reality of toxic masculinity without reifying it and therefore making it more acceptable in the world? Mm. And that is one of the hardest things I think that fiction challenges us as readers with, because we want to see the world as it is reflected in our fiction so that we can problematize it and we can wonder at the internal monologue of a bro dude like Harry which we don't have access to in real life. But simultaneously, not everybody is going to read that critically. And there's going to be some kid out there who reads this and is like, oh, I shouldn't cry if I want to be cool. You know, that is like the age old problem with fiction. And I think that the way to solve it is by talking about books that we read. And it's it, it's through community, right? I think that that is an absolute problem within the text. And yet I'm so glad to have the internal monologue of these like douchey, imperfect teenage boys. Our next voicemail is from Thomas. Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Thomas. I've been listening to you guys for a little bit now, but I started late and just got caught up. I just listened to your episode on identity. And in your sacred reading, you were talking about the line, she suppressed a sob in regards to Hermione getting the Beetle the Bard book from Dumbledore. And I automatically assumed that it had something to do with the fact that she was muggle-born. Um, I'm biracial, and I've struggled with identity issues for a lot of my life. And there have been times when one side of the family or the other will give me a culturally significant gift for my birthday or Christmas, and it can be very validating. And, you know, Hermione grew up without these stories, but being so well-read, she would have found out about them eventually. And... Slight side note, sometimes I wonder if her being so studious doesn't have something to do with her trying to prove her identity. You know, like, I am a witch and I'm going to be the best witch there is. Um, and now I can see her thinking of this as Dumbledore saying, these stories are yours. You may not have grown up in the culture, but you are part of it and they belong to you. So I just want to give a blessing to anybody who's struggling with cultural identity issues. Uh, you're seen, you are heard, and you are valid. And thank you all so much for such a wonderful show. Oh, that's so lovely, Thomas. I love that idea that these stories are part of her feeling like she belongs in the wizarding world. And, and I think I totally buy that idea that part of her desire to be the best witch is to kind of demonstrate her worthiness. I, th I think so many of us in different contexts might feel like we have to prove something when actually, you know, Dumbledore would be the first person to say, like, you don't have to be the best in order to count as a fully worthy which human. Um, and so I, I just love this reading, Thomas. Thank you. Next, we're hearing from Rebecca. Do Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. 
I love the podcast, but I've fallen behind, so I just finished listening to Book 6, Chapter 26, in which Dumbledore is killed. The older I become, the more Draco speaks to me. I was raised in a conservative home that used Catholicism as a justification to be hateful. And as it pains me to admit, until I was a young teenager, I fell along with many of my parents' beliefs. It wasn't until I realized that I was gay that my worldview fully and fundamentally changed. I began searching for help and support online and found a whole world of other ideas and possibilities. Because I had help, I was able to step off the path that my Trump-supporting family placed me on. In book six, the wool is pulled from Draco's eyes. He's a child who is realizing every adult he trusted was wrong. Draco doesn't want to kill Dumbledore, which is perhaps why his first two attempts were so recklessly convoluted. But as he explains, Draco has no choice. That line breaks my heart because I understand what it is like to be forced to attend a church that hates you, or bite your tongue when evil words are spoken before you because it is just not safe to speak up. I love Draco Malfoy, and I fear him because I see far too much of myself in him. I want to send a blessing to everyone who grew up in a place that taught hate. I want to bless those who are blind to the truth. May they find the light of the darkness as I once did. And I want to bless those of us who are trapped in a place where they aren't able to be themselves because they are afraid. You may feel ashamed for not speaking truth to power, but when that power holds your life in its hands, you are allowed to do whatever you have to do to survive. Please just remember that it is not forever, and you are not alone. Thank you to everyone at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text for making me feel less alone. Rebecca, thank you for that beautiful voicemail. Something that I just want to reflect back to our whole community is that all of your voicemails end with you are not alone, which is so beautiful. And I just love that. And Rebecca, I love your point that Draco is scared. And I think that's right. And I think that if when he was 15, he had gone to Dumbledore and said, I don't like what my parents are up to. I don't like the way we talk in my family there would have been a different way out. I think that, I think up until that last minute, right, Dumbledore was offering him a way out and he didn't take it. And I do think that that is different than you going to church. I think what's similar is that you were both young and you both felt pulled into something that was bigger than you. But Draco was offered a couple of real moments to step out and didn't take them. And I guess I want us to always be offering each other moments to step off of the treadmill of whatever it is we're on. And I actually think that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and the defund the police movement is giving society an opportunity to step off of the militarization of police treadmill. And it is now our responsibility to step off. And if we miss our stop, that is on us. And it's been on us before, but it's like on us again and more acutely now. And so, yes, I think we deserve multiple chances. But yes, I I think he's been given chances that he didn't take. And I love him. Yeah, I'm also really struck, Rebecca, by your invitation for all of us to see ourselves in Draco you know, maybe not to this an extreme in, an extent, but in every age, we can look back in history and be like, I can't believe that that was normal. And I think, you know, I'm always really conscious about what were the ways in which we were raised, whether intentionally or unintentionally, who in our culture have we not centered in ways that are really important. And so for, for all of us, I guess, to look at what's the Malfoyishness <laughs> as much as what's the Dursleyishness, what's the Malfoyishness in our upbringing and in our, in our psyche. I really love that invitation. Thank you, Rebecca. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. 
Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Our final voicemail today is going to be from Hannah. Hi, Sacred Text team. My name is Hannah, and I'm calling about your persistence episode because something Dumbledore said really struck me. So I am a high school English teacher, and one of my favorite parts of my job is helping my students become better humans. I work very hard to teach empathy and kindness and thoughtfulness. However, with 180 students, I know that there are kids who get to the end of the year who I have not reached and who will leave my class still with hateful or bigoted worldviews. And this failure makes it really difficult to persist in that effort the next year. And so when Dumbledore says, I taught Tom Riddle, I know his style, I hear a lot of guilt and grief from him, even though Tom's choices aren't his fault. And so to me, that's what makes the upcoming tower scene so beautiful. It's this cyclical moment where Dumbledore is facing Draco and Draco is the result of his inability to save Tom. And Dumbledore somehow finds the strength to persist. I mean, he is trying to guide Draco towards the light pretty much until his dying breath. And I know you guys have talked before on the show about finding value in quitting, but I also find so much inspiration from Dumbledore in this moment. And so I guess I just wonder what you guys think about persistence even after failure. When can we draw the line? When is it enough? I don't quite know where I fall, but I do want to offer a blessing to all the educators and mentors who don't feel effective, but persist anyway. I am so grateful for them. Hannah, the thing that really strikes me that you're pointing us towards is that what Dumbledore is doing is he's being faithful to his principles, to his commitments as a teacher. And actually, I think you said it yourself, which is that even in this moment at the very end, he's finding a new way to express those commitments, like the particular projects that maybe he did or or, or the way he taught in the classroom has changed, right? He quit being a classroom teacher to become the headmaster, but his principles and his values have really persisted. And so what I'm taking away from your reflection is that I want to be able to quit when a project isn't working, right? Or a friendship has come to an end or it's not happening, but the things that sit underneath are enduring, the values and the principles that those are things I should persist with. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I love that distinction about when to persist. And there are certain things that we should quit. Educating children is obviously not one of the things. And I would say that individual teacher failures are real and are profound and we can beat ourselves up about them. And I think that like Dumbledore, we should reflect on them in order to do better when a similar situation presents itself even 30 years later or 50 years later, right, as the situation with Voldemort represents itself with Draco. But this is also a systems failure. It was Dumbledore's fault for not catching Tom Riddle, but it was also a problem that there wasn't a guidance counselor at Hogwarts who Tom had to meet with. This is also a systems problem in that he was at an orphanage that sounds like it was underfunded and so he wasn't able to get the love and affection he needed. And I think that that is also true in our school today, right? These are systems failures. So yes, 
you're not going to be able to reach every student, but that should be why you are not their only teacher. You're just the English teacher. And maybe the history teacher is going to catch that student or maybe the guidance counselor, maybe the math teacher or the coach. And so I think we have to simultaneously see our complicity and always be trying to learn and improve, but also be advocating for these systems level corrections because as mediocre of a teacher as I was, even if I had been the best possible version of a teacher that I could be, there were going to be certain students who I just didn't connect with, who just don't understand why I love Romeo and Juliet, and they would rather talk about math or football. And so I, I just think it's important to persist in our work and also persist in trying to fix these systems because these are not simply individual failures. And also, high school English teachers for the win. Yeah, seriously. If there's anything I've learned from rereading these books, it's that teachers deserve better pay grades. They deserve way more love. And my gosh, you have a hard job that I know so many of you give everything to. It's incredible. So thank you, Hannah. And thank you to everybody who sent in voicemails. We love our Owl Post episodes. And we literally, quite literally, couldn't do them without you. It would be awkward if we just listened to silence and then pretended to respond. That's a really interesting silence. Mm, yeah. <laughs> oh, that makes me wonder. <laughs> thank you, Hannah. And thank you to everyone who sent in voicemails for this episode. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join our Facebook common room to chat with other listeners about the show. And come and join the wonderful community of people supporting us on Patreon. You make this show possible. Thank you. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 15, Goblin's Revenge, through the theme of ownership. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman and our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. We want to give a special thanks to Lauren Sandler for being our guest on this week and for the extended version of the interview, you can join us on Patreon. We want to thank Jessica, Laura, Thomas, Rebecca, and Hannah for this week's voicemail. Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you next week. Goodbye, everyone. Something that I just want to reflect back to our whole community is that all of your voicemails end with you are not alone. And I feel a little indicted. Maybe we're making people feel alone. And you all are like, everyone, you're not alone. Don't believe what these two randos have to say. Casper and Vanessa are lying. So thank you.